0: Welcome to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. My guest today is Jonathan Turner, a fellow millennial who has written about and worked extensively with young people to help them build wealth over the past 10 years. In this episode, we discuss one of the most pressing questions facing millennials right now, which is how do we survive two cataclysmic economic events in a 10-year span? A millennial is anyone born between the years 1981 and 1996, which as of last year would put us between the ages of 23 and 38. Even before this pandemic, millennials were in a tough spot. Many of us entered the economy during the Great Recession. We carry $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. Half of us have a side hustle in the gig economy. 62% of us live paycheck to paycheck, 66% of us have nothing saved for retirement, and home ownership for millennials is 8 percentage points lower than it was for previous generations at the same age, in large part because of a massive housing crisis that we did not cause. Now add in a global pandemic and market crash. Just recently, it was reported that 52% of Americans under the age of 45 have either lost their job, been put on leave, or had their hours dramatically cut as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, exactly double the percentage of people over the age of 45 who suffered the same economic issues. And this makes sense, because as I mentioned, millennials are disproportionate holders of a lot of the jobs that have been wiped away. Things like restaurants and bars, health clubs, yoga studios, or retail. In other words, millennials are going to bear the brunt of this economic crisis, just as we did in 2008. We've never really had economic security, and this pandemic all but guarantees that we will be the first generation in modern American history to end up poorer than our parents. Jonathan is the author of the book Stop Faking It, Start Making It, Millennial's Guide to Real Wealth Creation. In this episode, we discuss the origins of generational inequality, the lack of financial literacy in schools, the impact that social media has on millennial perceptions of wealth, and what young people can do today to achieve financial stability over the course of the next several decades. Jonathan has made it his life's work to help young people make their way up in the world. And during this pandemic, we need his financial advice now more than ever. Without further ado, I bring you our next true neighbor, Jonathan Turner. All right, I'm here with Jonathan Turner. John, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Tom. So I'm excited to talk to you because when we first met, you and I had a pretty lengthy discussion about um, millennials, what our future looked like from an economic standpoint, and just about how you know financial literacy was a big thing, kind of lacking in our generation. And now, fast forward several months, and the concerns you mentioned are amplified all the more. Um, but before we jump into it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and your background, and and what you've been doing over these past several years?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. I have a decade of experience, which may not sound like a lot to some, but uh, for the past 10 years of my life, I've been in the active role of being a financial advisor. And I say in the active role because I grew up around it. So I am right now uh, 33 years of age. And right when I was born, my father made the transition from being actually a police officer and transitioned into um, financial planning and then built up his practice along that. So I jokingly tell everyone I've kind of been in the financial service industry for 33 years because I've grown up around it. It's all I've ever known. And I've seen him build the practice from the ground up and also just experienced all the pitfalls along the way, going through multiple recessions and of course, all the good times as well. So it was kind of a no-brainer when I uh, wanted to make a career decision. It was either go into the military and fly a jet because I wanted to be Tom Cruise flying off an aircraft carrier <laughs> or I wanted to go work with my dad. <laughs> I applied into the military. Uh, they said, yeah, you can come and absolutely uh, join, but you are never going to fly an airplane <laughs> uh, simply because my eyesight is just, it's abysmal. So that kind of ended that real quick and then made the conscious decision to uh, join my father. So, went to Penn State, graduated from there in 2009, and came on board. So, I picked a really great time also to come on board mm. into the financial services industry. So, it was, a, it was a great learning experience. I mean, you talk about just being baptized by fire. Uh, it was a very interesting time coming into the industry. And yeah, what was that like? I mean,
0: walk, in, walk us through you know, 2009, entering the financial services. What was that atmosphere
1: like? Well, the nice thing is, at least I could say, is I came on board after the true bottom of it. So um, I graduated in the fall of two thousand nine. So I saw I was very closely working with my dad, though still behind the scenes um, on things uh, in my senior year of college, and I saw just all of the the chaos and the pandemonium that was going with, going on from two thousand eight all the way into two thousand nine. So it was a great learning experience to see how um, his practice reacted to the entire situation, how they had plans put in place for some things and, but also just certain areas where there is the inevitable, you're going to take it on the chin a little bit. There is no, no matter what you do, there is no perfect plan. There is no magic pill that's going to completely eradicate any volatility in anyone's life. And so it was a great learning experience coming right into that. And then of course, coming on board into the practice at the end of 2009 um, and then coming in, in 2010, seeing just the opposite side of that as the market started to rebound and the economy started to begin to progress again. So it was, like I said, it was a, it was a great learning experience because right away, From my time, at least being consciously aware of the markets. uh, Of course, I knew about the dot-com bubble and things like that, but I didn't live it. And or I I lived, I should say, but I didn't know what the heck it was. And all the research that doesn't that doesn't give you any like, let's say, a lasting impression or any feeling as far as how uh, you want to react. So going through 2008, 2009 was very different. It was very big, learning and eye-opening experience, just to see how people reacted and also. just to see how many people, um, not necessarily working with my father, but just people in general were just completely ill prepared for it. And so one of the things that was a huge focus of my father's and then became a focus of mine after my joining of the practice was to really help people to prepare for the next... 2008, 2009, because we didn't know when it would happen. No one does, but there's that old saying: uh, the old saying, you know, um, failure to plan is planning to fail. And we took that to heart. And so we, for all of our clients, especially wanted to then work with them to make sure that the next time 2008, 2009 happened again, that we were in even better position for them to make sure that we could weather the storm. And I spent the better part then of the past decade doing exactly that. And I worked with many small business owners and just many individual people. Uh, to prepare for it. And along the way though, the one thing that was glaring that stood out was I was working with many, many, many people that were in their, say, l- late stages of their career. They have already built their business. Or they were already in their career. They they were producing the income and they had already built up some sort of investments. And really what I was acting at that point is was I was the steward of their wealth. I was not going to help guide them into that next Phase of life, the next step of it. But what I realized was when I would talk to their children who were around my age, or when I talked to my friends, there wasn't that same preparedness, there wasn't that readiness level around knowing how to manage your money, knowing what the true meaning of wealth is, knowing how to use money as a tool and nothing else, the proper ways to leverage debt or anything else. There's just very, very mismanaged guidance or just ill-preparedness around money and for people my age, the millennial generation. And so that's what really then got me in 2018 to start to look at that area and make it actually my focus. And so we essentially on our practice made a divide. We created two different silos. One silo we called wealth management. And that was the area that would focus on those individuals or small businesses that had already attained, if you want to say, quote unquote, wealth and not to put a dollar figure on it. It was just meaning you've already built up something that could sustain you into the next step of your life. And the second silo was called the wealth builder. And that was to help people to figure out, well, what do they need to do today to start to create and build their wealth that's lasting and true now and into the future. So that became my primary focus. And through a lot of then just interviews and working with many young people, it helped me to then kind of craft the overall mindset, uh, at least people that I was working with, their mindset around money. And it allowed me then to create the book, which was a way that I felt to give a, a voice to myself much larger than I could do by just talking from one person to the next or just posting on social media because the other problem, as great as social media is, there is a lot of BS on there. There's a lot of misinformation and that causes people to be very skeptical. So I wanted to make sure that I could put all of my um, efforts into a way that would allow me to, in a very credible way, show here's the proper ways to not only create your ideal vision of wealth, but how you go about the processes of attaining that. And again, it's this is not in anything that we do. It's not gonna happen overnight. There is no get rich quick. There is nothing like that. This is many, many, many calculated steps and discipline steps that allow you to retain then your wealth many years in the future. But that's really what's gotten me to where we are now with our, with our practice and has also allowed me then to transition to making a few other steps for myself career wise, uh, simply because of making these exact same calculated steps for myself.
0: And so it sounds like really from the beginning, I mean, you enter your career during a a massive recession, um, navigate it and come out the other side, uh, you know, better off. Than, than many. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what your initial diagnosis was for the lack of financial literacy among our generation. I mean, is is the educational upbringing that we received any different from our parents? Or were we less focused on it? Is wealth expressed in a different way today that makes it, makes it harder to comprehend? I mean, what's the rationale for why you think um, millennials today are less prepared perhaps than previous generations?
1: I think it's a lot of things. It's a combination pretty much of everything that you quoted just now. I would say it's all of that in all honesty. Uh, the problem is there's many things that are different for our generation than what was there for our parents. I mean, number one is just education itself. There's For our generation, the millennials, there are over 40% that hold a college degree for our parents' generation, there was less than 16%. So the baby boomers, less than 16% had a college degree. And so back in the day, the college degree, I would say it meant something. It meant more than what it means today. And the problem is today, you have more people going to college and getting degrees. While I'm not saying that colleges are bad and you shouldn't go to college, I think there are far too many degrees that are out there and they're not focused enough or specific enough. And many times, People of our age and younger now fall victim to the notion that they have to go to college to succeed and they go into a lot of debt to attain that degree, but it doesn't give them the competitive advantage they once did. So back for our parents, the baby boomers, if 16% of your generation had a college degree, I mean, that gives you a lot of credibility and clout over the remainder of your peers. It's a competitive advantage. Now, if 40% of our generation is holding a college degree, it doesn't have the same competitive advantage. It doesn't carry the same weight that it once did. And then you also couple the astronomical increase in the cost of education that we experience today compared again what it was for our parents. It creates a lot of problems. I mean, and I, now I went to college and I'm not saying that you shouldn't go to college. I think college is very beneficial for certain career fields. There's other career fields I think that, it doesn't hold as much relevance for. But even in my career field, uh, going into finance, pretty much everything that I know now in my industry, I learned after I left college. And there was not even in, say, high school, any course that prepared me for the next step coming into college to talk about, for example, student loans, or to talk about how to pay back those student loans. That's one of the biggest things that I find just insane in today's society and world. You can go and apply for a college loan for tuition and you can get $100,000. If I want to go and apply though for a $20,000 business loan and I'm the same age, people are going to look at me and tell me, no way. So it's very, it's just interesting that you can get all this money to go to college, but you can't get that same amount of money to start your own business. And guess what? Part of the reason is there's strings attached to that money when you go to college. The colleges know if they hand out this money and they go to the bank to get the the loan to give to you, the banks, they're guaranteed that money by the government. So there's not really anything that's going to deter them from giving the money. They're incentivized to give you as much money as you possibly want because they know they're gonna get paid for it because you're on the hook for it no matter what. The only way you're getting out of the student loans is if you die or you pay it off, that's it. There's no other way out of that game. And so it does create a problem where you have colleges that are pushing degrees and banks, of course, that are pushing loans that really aren't justified. And I I really think, just my personal opinion, That if there was just one course when you're in your senior year of high school that would teach you just the pros and cons of going to college and talk about the purpose of why you want to take out a student loan, but also how to consider paying back the student loan. And one example is while you're in college, don't defer the student loans until you graduate. Start paying on them right away. That's four years of payments that you have and having calculators so that students could make the, the just the generalistic calculations to figure out well if i put x amount meaning if i have a part-time job that pays me x and i put y on my student loans for the next four years i'll be in z position i'll be farther along if i defer it there is nothing that talks about that and i think it would go a long way to help people understand just number one debt and debt management but number two would drastically probably cut down on the crisis we have which is just for student loan debt in and of itself yeah. And so then you have a whole generation of students
0: entering the marketplace burdened by debt. And you talk about in your book, there are another an, a number of other factors that come into play here. Um, you know, millennials are the first generation in American history slated to be more educated, but less affluent than their parents. Um, and you kind of trace this back over the past several decades. You talk about inflation, you talk about wages, um, you talk about the cost of living. What are some factors that come into play which makes it harder for a millennial to maintain a middle class lifestyle than it would have been for our parents.
1: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Number one is going to be exactly what you mentioned with inflation. For one, the cost of living continues to get higher, but you have wages which have not maintained that same level. I mean, wages really for our generation have not grown dramatically over the past 10 years. And 2008, 2009 is a a big cause of that because you had such compression during that time period. And over the past 10 years since the Great Recession, wage growth has not really kept up with, say, the inflation rate compared to what it did in the past. So I'm not saying that there hasn't been wage growth. I'm just saying that it hasn't kept up the same rate that it did in the past before the Great Recession. And now you're also met with the same problem yet again, where I would say this is an even worse position than what we were met with in 2008, 2009. So for millennials, we're met with back-to-back, very big, I mean, what used to be considered once-in-a-generation event, we're having it happen twice in our generation, where you see a huge cutback in wages, a huge cutback in productivity across the economy, and also a huge cutback in jobs. Uh, I remember how many people were affected in 2008, 2009 with their careers. And many people are unemployed and their careers were now obsolete. And the careers that did continue, well, you had an older generation with the baby boomers that were essentially forced out. And I still see it happen prior to say this past uh, current event where it still happened over the past couple of years where they would force out the, the baby boomer generation. Many employers would do this and they would continue to hire on our generation millennials or even younger the Gen Z, but they know they could do so and pay them less to have that same position. And now that cycle is going to start all over again. So those two things right there, I think are the biggest causes of what's kept wages where they're at and also kept us in a position that for one, doesn't allow us to attain maybe the same um, affluence that our parents possibly had. And then you also couple that with debt, and the staggering amount of debt that many millennials carry between credit card debt as well as student loan debt. And you've got a recipe for disaster, which it all circles back to the number one thing, which is financial education and financial literacy. And there is very minimal education around money, around wealth, around the true purpose of money in high school and also in college. And that I think at the end of the day is the absolute biggest problem. I mean, many years ago, over a decade ago, you had over 26 states that would be doing on their generalized testing. Uh, they had very, uh, I would say strict, but they had pretty in-depth economic uh, curriculum. It's down to five states now. So it just that shows right there that it's not a priority of many of the states. And it's not a priority of the education system to teach people about money. And that's going to then, of course, it's going to breed problems, which is why we are in the position we're in.
0: And the system itself has, has um, amplified this because, you know, I've read that um, all the job growth after 2008 that occurred, um, something like 99% of it was actually in retail and the gig economy, independent contractors. Yep. Um, and so, you know, genuine job growth actually remained pretty flat. It was just those specific sectors which um, millennials tend to fill at a disproportionate rate. Um, in fact, I think um, 52% of workers under 45 have been laid off in the pandemic. Um, but a lot of those positions don't have 401ks, let alone pensions. They don't have exactly um, great healthcare benefits. And so even if you are financially literate, you know, how much does literacy get you when you are entering an economy that cripples you with debt and then you have limited options available for, for your profession? I, I mean, can obviously knowing how to manage your finances helps, but you know, how far does that in the long-term really get you out of that position?
1: Well, I mean, part of it, having the literacy and understanding as far as where the world is at, where the economy is at, and understanding just some of these pitfalls. If you have a understanding about money, and when I say this, meaning if you look at money as a tool and the way that I have always taught people in the past and still talk to people in the uh, current, you wanna use money as a tool and it is nothing more than a tool if you use the tool the wrong way whatever you're building is going to fall apart if you use a tool the right way whatever you're building is still going to probably have issues but it's going to last and it's going to weather many storms and look at when you look at your investments and your money and your wealth all of that you look at your career you can make calculate decisions on the career field that you're in if that's the best case for whatever it is for your true vision of wealth Will that help you attain that? And then figuring out, well, where do you want to see the end of your life? Where do you want to be at when you get to that point to the work optional lifestyle? Whatever it may be, what does it look like? And then crafting along the way, what do you need to systematically start to do to attain that? How much money do you need to invest on a monthly basis? Or how do you focus on paying down certain debts? Having that understanding to use the tool the right way is going to go a long way. I mean, same with a house. If you have your hammer and your nails and you're putting, putting the nails into the two by fours and you're doing it the wrong way, you don't use the hammer and the nails the right way, guess what? That house is going to collapse, right? But even if you build a great house, that house is not impervious. You can still have a tornado come along or a hurricane come along and completely damage the house. And sometimes, hey, it could still break it, but at least it gives you the ability to repair when you need to that's what goes a very long way compared to just having no understanding around money or finance at all and again anyone that's listening to this I I am saying this in a way that I want to be aspirational it's not a knock on people that do not understand anything about money or fin- or don't have any true financial literacy I am calling out the education system I'm calling out the powers that be that have failed everyone to educate them on this, because that's where the failure is. It, not having this proper education, this proper guidance coming up has created a lot of these issues.
0: One of the things that I find really interesting in your book is how you talk about the way that social media shapes the millennial perception of wealth. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? What, How does social media come into play here?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, social media has, all it's done is is shrunk the world, right? I mean, in the past, if I wanted to talk to someone in China or in Bangladesh or wherever it is, uh, it's not going to happen unless I'm sending them an email back and forth. But now I can, in real time, go on Instagram, I can go on Twitter, Facebook, anything, and I can message them in real time. And also, I can get information and disseminate that information in real time. So social media says, number one, it shrunk the world, but number two, it's allowed for the spread of misinformation also and also it's kind of changed people's perception around reality so that that old saying there's there's a little bit of a difference between truth and reality it's very true because many people can fall victim and fall in that trap when they go on social media nowadays where a lot of things are pushed and peddled and put on this higher pedestal than where they really deserve to be and material items number one all the live long day are pushed on social media. And so it does, I'd say, warp a lot of people's general understanding of what wealth is. And it kind of, uh, it affects it in a negative manner. I mean, when I wrote my book, I interviewed a thousand people and I asked all of them. I, it was multiple choice questions. And I, one of the questions and the, the funniest one that I found very sad at the same time was give me your uh, definition of wealth. And I would have A all the way down to E and the top ones were, and it was multiple choice and you could pick more than one. So it would say uh, the private jet, the mansion, the yacht, exotic cars, providing food for your family, being able to provide your family's vision of wealth. But the overall the overall response was not provide food for your family or provide your family's vision of wealth. It was, gonna, it was the material stuff, just the things that money can afford if you have money. But again, that, doesn't mean anything. That's that's just irrelevant. These are all material items. But the resounding response, at least to the people that I surveyed. Now, again, I will let's take this with a grain of salt because it was only 1,000 people. So it could have potentially been skewed. I tried to be as geographically open across the country as I could because I did it online. Um, but still, it was a very small sample pool. But from that sample pool, though, it was very interesting because the majority of them would look at the material stuff first. And after I'd go back and ask them, well, why would you have that? Why not? Why not? Why not putting food for your family? Why not be able to just spend time with your family, Being able to travel, Being able to be there with your children and raise them instead of being uh, a slave to your, to your career or anything else. And, once I would bring it up, they go, oh, no, that's, that's true. No, I, uh, the thing I care about would be I want to make sure I, I can afford to put food on the table for my for my family. Like, well, why would you put that first? Why Why'd you answer the material stuff over here? So it's kind of interesting to see that. And it's also then that kind of goes hand in hand. Why you see so much stuff happen online with these scams. And uh, anyone who knows me knows that the biggest pet peeve that I have on the face of this earth, more than anything, more than anyone who is even an Eagles fan. The biggest thing that I just absolutely just gets me going is people that take to online and sell these online courses about how to get rich quick. And the sad thing is people continue to fall for it because they think they see this one person who has what they are told by society and by the media, this nice house or this cool car, this fancy vacation spot, they're on a beach, it looks really exotic and sexy. That means that person is wealthy, and they're doing it, and I want to have what they have. And I'm willing now to pay that person to teach me how to do it. It never happens. You never get what they have because they don't have it all in the first place. The only thing that they've done is they've sold you a course on how to get rich, and then they got rich because they sold you the course on how to get rich. And I see that happen all the time. It really just infuriates me. I mean, that. If you can tell or not, it's the number one thing that right now even makes me want to grind my teeth. But the problem is, again, it goes directly back to financial literacy, not understanding the value of number one, compounding interest. Number two, how to use debt the right way, how to use money as a tool, or how to understand and craft what wealth really means to you. Because every single person should really, what and what no one answered on the survey, even though I had six multiple choice questions no one said anything else. Even when I asked them, well, tell me something else. They would always go back off to that scripted uh, response. Well, why can't there be more than just those six answers? There's many things that wealth can mean. Wealth doesn't have to always mean just the monetary stuff either. It could mean just being able to spend time with your significant other, having a great relationship with God or anything else, whatever you believe in, or or any of that stuff. All that can mean wealth. And that was, again, the, the, point I was trying to make with the book, and even why I made the title, Stop Faking It, Start Making It, it's people are, in today's society, they're very fake. And they're trying to live up to fake standards also. And that also leads back to creating more problems where we fall in this trap of trying to attain what we think we should have based on what others say we should have. And it actually hurts us more than it helps us. No, it's
0: it's a fascinating insight. And, you know, and I think it's, profound because I remember reading an article um, by Charlie Munger, who I'm sure you know um, his Mm -hmm. his work well, but uh, he talks often about the psychology of misjudgment. And, you know, he gives us, you know, there's simple examples like if you put, you know, Tiger Woods in a Buick, um, there's a good chance that you might increase the number of people who buy a Buick. Uh, And you can create these kind of um, uh, co-extensive relationships between material products and who other people regard as being uh, wealthy or um, having a high social status and social media really magnifies that inherent weakness in consumer behavior Uh, and we're the first generation that has ever had to deal with this in a really micro targeted and specific way Um, and so it seems like old tactics are being put in place on steroids through social media is that fair to say Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean,
1: get-rich-quick scams, they've always been around. And so has misrepresentation sometimes in the media as well. Nothing's changed in the world. It's just been amplified. Like like I said, at the very beginning of this um, topic, all we did with social media for as great as it is, we've shrunk the world and we've given not only a voice for the people with the Best intentions and everything else. We've also given a better and bigger voice to people with the worst intentions and every and all the wrong intentions. Everything else. So it's just it's allowed everyone to have a bigger voice and to carry carry the voice even further. That's all that's really changed with the the era of social media. Nothing more, nothing less. What do you think? Um, you know, there's been um, a lot
0: of discussion in in really since the turn of the century, but particularly right now about how millennials are viewing their identity through the lens of their profession. You know, our generation, much less than our parents, um, we tend not to go to YMCAs or uh, we're not nearly as religious. We're not nearly as political. um, We don't do much civically. Uh, We view ourselves and our self-worth through the lens of our job. Um, What role do you think That plays from a societal standpoint in the pressure it puts not only to get ahead, but then to display um, what we've been able to accomplish in our professional lives. Yeah, I
1: don't know if I exactly agree with that entirely. And the one part that I I don't agree with is, is the job aspect, having that much of a definition. Because in all honesty, I think that our generation, we're more prone to having multiple careers where our parents, I would say, that aspect of it... I would almost argue that the baby boomers were more inclined to have their lives shaped by their career. I mean, you how many times you heard the saying, the company men and everything else? Um, they, they had one career. Like For example, my mom was a nurse for her entire life until she decided to no longer be a nurse. Now, my father, he did make a conscious change simply because I think my mom gave him an ultimatum when she found out that I was coming along to grace their life. It was okay. You got to make a change because... I don't want you to be in the line of fire anymore. So without that, with that being an exception to the rule, many though, of the baby boomers, they, they had one career. They had then, of course, their pension and uh, their retirement plan. that kind of just rolled out into the sunset where with our generation, there isn't number one, we don't have the same loyalty to one company, but at the same time, companies don't have the same loyalty to us either. And companies don't look at us. Uh, like they maybe looked at our parents. And even now they don't look at our parents that with that same loyalty either. Uh, I would argue that in today's world, companies view our parents and us almost the same as being nothing but a disposable workforce. We're there for them when it's beneficial, but when times get tough, I mean, look at over the past, uh, couple of weeks of everything that's transpired, but also back in 2008, 2009, how true that really is where just the lack of planning and when things do get tough, a lot of companies, they're, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to try and cut their workforce as much as they can, instead of trying to preserve that workforce, irregardless of the length, longevity of that person or anything else. And I, I think that that part kind of is sad, but it, it definitely affects us also. Absolutely.
0: No, That's a, that's a very great point. I actually think The average, uh, millennial stays about three and a half years at their job. So it's, uh, they're much more. Yeah, likely it's, to bounce around. Uh, yeah, I
1: think I forget the exact statistic for that for how many careers. Someone did a survey a couple of years ago, and they were saying the average number of careers that millennials will most likely carry throughout their life. And I, I just don't don't quote me on this. I want to say it was five or six. It might even be more than that. Um, so I'm not exactly sure uh, on that exact number. But I, uh, when I saw it, I was like, that's kind of crazy. Like I always envision myself in my life as only ever having one career being in the financial advising world. But I mean, that's actually also changed because I made a change to take over and and help to manage an investment fund. Um, But be it as may, many people though, that I know, even my own peers, they've had three or four careers at this point already where they've moved around. Some of it was by choice, but some of it was not by choice. Mm. What would you say to
0: a millennial right now who's recently been furloughed or laid off? They're still looking at student debt, they um, you know have already entered an economic structure that is not built to uh, you know help them get ahead very quickly. Um, what what steps can they take right now to put themselves in a position once this um, once we
1: get through this pandemic to be able to get back on track with where they were financially? Yeah, I mean step number one is you got to figure out your financial house and get that house in order. And the thing I can't stress enough is you have to plan like I said before failure to plan is planning to fail. And I absolutely 100% believe in that and take that to heart. If you don't have a plan, it doesn't matter what you do, you're never going to achieve a goal. Same thing with you go to the gym, you say you want to lose weight. If you don't have a plan on how to do that, you're not going to lose weight. And the one thing I'll tell anyone right now that's being affected by this is you want to do a dive at this current time to look at where is the debt that you uh, that you have accumulated? Where is it at? How much is it? What is the interest rate that you have on each one of the debts you may have? So then you can start to categorize exactly where the debt may be at. And after that, you can start to then devise a plan on how to pay down the higher interest debt first and work to the lower interest debt. Now, there is no perfect answer or solution, though, coming out of this, because also we don't know what's going to happen over the next couple months. Gosh, we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, it's what? It's April 21st. On April 20th, we had oil go negative, And that's never happened in recorded history, as far as I'm aware. And so every time you hear well this time's different or this is this is different usually it's okay whatever it's not that different it's just it's a cycle this time though honestly it is different we're having a lot of things that have happened that have never happened before we've literally shut down our economy because of the pandemic of the coronavirus all things that we've never experienced in the past but again what this is bringing to light though in one week with the greatest economy on the face of the earth, we were brought to our knees by this virus in one week. The moment they shut down the country, look at how many people were all—I mean, overnight—unemployed or being furloughed. How many companies needed bailout money right away? They couldn't operate. Now, I, I understand it doesn't matter how great your business model is if you don't ha- if you don't work for say six months one year. I I don't care what your business is, it's going to have problems. I absolutely uh, understand that and agree. But in a week, in two weeks, you had a lot of these companies that were going essentially belly up without any government assistance. And it really shows also just the gross mismanagement by many companies that they went through 2008, 2009, And then for the past 10 years, they didn't put any money away for the rainy day when the next recession or the next economic event would happen. Everyone kind of shrugged it off. And I feel that what the lessons should have been learned in 2008, 2009, they really weren't applied. And so now that you have this event happening, it's like deja vu. It's Groundhog Day. All of these companies that had the same problems in the past have them now, but they have them worse. And until we change that thinking, until people get the wake-up call, you're not going to see that really change also, unfortunately, from a company standpoint or from the government standpoint. Um, and That's one thing that for me really frustrates me because like I said, we're the, what I would argue, the greatest economy on the planet. And in a week, we're brought to our knees. Things are shutting down. Things are going out of business. People have to get laid off. Why are these companies getting all this bailout money, and all these other resources, but they're not just able to then maintain their work staff. They're still cutting staff. They're still furloughing people. What the heck is going on there? It, it, it really boggles my mind. That's one of the biggest frustrations I have right now, because again, it goes back to mismanagement of money and lack of financial education.
0: Let me ask you this. There is an article written recently um, by Scott Galloway, who's a um, professor at NYU. And he talked about how um, unlike previous generations, um, the baby boomers have been essentially guaranteed their own uh, stability and that it's millennials and other generations who are basically subsidizing their risk. And what he means by that is they are allowed to take gambles and play the capitalistic game and then get bailed out in, in not only in a time like this, but in 2008. Anytime there's a financial crisis, it's the major public corporations um, who receive the large portion of the bailout and as a result, their poor management and their misallocation of funds, whether criminal or negligence, uh, really has no consequence. And, you know, the what capitalism is supposed to do is uh, disincentivize that type of practice. Whereas now, um, what we've done is basically create a single class that's allowed to take any t- sort of risk without any repercussion. And then it's the next generation who's basically footing that bill. And what he argues is that instead of once again subsidizing and bailing out these companies that have exhibited a pattern of poor practice, we should let them fail uh, and create um, essentially an opening for somebody else to get in for a new generation of entrepreneurs to uh, to have access to capital. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, on the way
1: that we're orchestrating our bailout right now? Yeah. I mean, I love... Professor Galloway, I've listened to his stuff. I mean, he's he is great, isn't he's, he? a, he's a riot. I'm really, the day he stopped doing his uh, videos for YouTube, uh, it was a very sad day for Same. me. Cause that's the stuff, I mean, I like him because he doesn't hold, he doesn't point any punches. It's no holds bar. He's gonna tell you how he feels. And he's also giving you a, a true dose of reality. And the problem is, in the society we live in today, people are afraid of the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. Even if they know what the truth is, they would rather live in this fairy tale, fantasy world where everyone gets along and everyone makes money. No, life isn't fair. Not everyone's gonna make the same amount of money. Not everyone's gonna have the same experience in life. And that's just called life. And unfortunately though, yeah, I agree with him that you've seen this gross negligence of a lot of companies that have become that, that saying, which I, don't get this saying at all. Too big to fail. Well, how how is that possible? Anything, every, everything should be able to fail, yeah, but you have these failed. companies that are, are just, quote unquote too big to fail, and they get a check stroke, and that check is paid back by not them; it's paid back by us, the taxpayers, and over many years. And that's yeah, that's a really really big frustration that I that I also have with it. I mean, also think about this though: if if I myself were to say, you know what, I'm gonna try and buy this four million dollar mansion. That's gonna be my company. I'm gonna build it great and do all this awesome stuff with it. So I get all this money to start building it and I misappropriate the funds. I go off and start taking lavish vacations and everything else. And now all of a sudden I have to start paying back this money and I go, oops, it's all gone. I I I didn't I squandered. I didn't do the right things. No one's going to come bail me out and say, you know what, Jonathan, that house was too big to fail. So here's a check for $5 million. Good, good job. Try it again. You know what I mean? Like when you say it like that, it's like, well, how the heck do all these companies get this bailout money? I'm not saying that like no one deserves it, but you need to look at what are the companies are being bailed out? And also, why are we not considering the repercussions for the bailout? Why are there not major strings attached to it or allowing them to just fail and someone else take over? Now, I get it. Some certain industries is because they have a direct economic tie to the rest of our economy, meaning if that company fails, it's a domino effect. I mean, the airlines is a good example, even though the airlines, again, I think grossly mismanaged a lot of their money over the past couple years, but you you stop airlines and let one airline go under, it becomes a domino effect. Well, then you have other problems because no more, uh, not only travel uh, for a period of time until someone else gets up and running, but you stop also goods moving across this country, moving across the world. So that also then just collapses the economy. So, I mean, that's where the saying too big to fail comes from, but the problem is that we let it happen in the first place. I mean, this, the writings on the wall, honestly, this stuff doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't go, I never saw that coming. You know what I mean? It, it, there's tons of signs, but when times are good and everyone's making money, no one cares about the warning signs. No, people only care when people aren't making money. That's when people are upset. And that's when people start to go, well, we should have done something different. And again, it's something that until that changes, this cycle will repeat itself and it will continue to repeat itself into oblivion until something else breaks. So that's kind of a, a good segue to what I wanted to to end our conversation
0: with. Um, cause clearly we do have to change. We've change a lot in this country. Um, but if you had to pick kind of a, uh, you know, a, a top three or four issue hierarchy of things that you would point to right away and say, you know, if we can change the way we do this, whether it's policy, whether it's edu- some form of how we, um, implement curriculum in public schools, um, whether it's societal or cultural. If you could identify just three or four major issues that we think need a course correction, what would they be?
1: I mean, a course correction, one would definitely be on a societal level between media and social media, just the reporting of news, the reporting of information. There's too much in today's world where things are over-sensationalized, The media no longer, I feel, stands for being the media. They're not there just to report. They're there to give opinion. And that goes on both sides of the aisle and for everything else. And there's too much of the look at me kind of just avenues that are out there in today's world where it's, we need to follow one person who's an influencer, quote unquote, and got to buy everything that person promotes and everything else. And then of course it leads into people looking at wealth in the wrong way. You're looking at it through a kaleidoscope instead of through a microscope. But the, the biggest thing, I mean, that's just a gripe that I have and that will change at some point. I think it's slowly starting to change now. Some people are starting to become more aware of it. And eventually it will probably change on its own just because of the way that the world works. But the biggest thing that I feel needs to change is just education in and of itself around money. At the very least, having just a single course around the understanding of money, how to use it as a tool, how to look at debt and approach debt, having those types of um, courses in high school, before you go into a higher education, if higher education makes sense, I think it'd be very profound because again, college and higher education, it's not necessary for everyone, especially in today's world. And if you learn about money while you're in high school, you graduate then with a a better understanding of how to use money, that's gonna go very far. I'm not saying that they need to have courses to talk about 401ks or IRAs or how to trade stocks. Because that's that's getting way too deep in the weeds. But just the basic understanding of how to use money as a tool, how to use debt, what, why you want to have a credit card, why you don't want to have a credit card at certain times. I think that those basics would go a very far away and change not all the problems we have with money, but it would definitely help minimize them. Absolutely. And it's phenomenal advice. And it's advice that you lay out in
0: very... Um, Easy to, in an easy to consume way in your book. Where can where can people find your book if they'd like to purchase it?
1: Yeah, um, so I do have the book. It's on Amazon. The title of the book is Start. I'm sorry, Stop Faking It, <laughs> Start Making It. And the website is www. dot com. So you can either go on Amazon and search Stop Faking It, Start Making It, or you can go right to the direct website, which is www. dot com. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jonathan. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I know it's
0: advice that um, really made a difference for me. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your insights with us. Yeah. Appreciate you having me on here.